Welcome to GovCast. I am your host, Managing Editor Amy Kluber. Biophotonics. That's something you don't hear every day, but the technology is prevalent. Think LASIK surgery, ultrasound scanners, cancer detection. These are all applications of the field. Biophotonics plus biomedical optics are growing fields that use light to image and conduct therapy at the molecular, cellular, and tissue levels. We talked to the director of the National Institute of Biomedical Imaging and Bioengineering at NIH, Bruce Tromberg, about the importance of modernized IT to support the research behind this tech and the future of his research initiatives at the agency. Bruce, thank you for joining us on GovCast. Great to have you today. Describe what the National Institute for Biomedical Imaging and Bioengineering does exactly. Okay, that's a big question. So we're one of 27 institutes and centers at the NIH. The unique thing about the NIBIB is we're the only institute that focuses entirely on engineering and physical science in biology and medicine. That's our main mission. So we support research all over the world. We have about a $400 million a year budget, and we support roughly 1,000 grants all around the world on topics related to technology development in engineering and physical science. Again, bringing those ideas and concepts mathematical approaches into biology and medicine to solve important problems. That's our entire focus. So how did you land your current role here? What brought you to NIH? Well, that's my community. That's what I do. My background is in optics and photonics, using lasers and other optical technologies to measure and actually provide therapy for biologic systems for people. So I've been able to work in this whole process where we call blackboard to benchtop to bedside, where we design technologies, we use mathematical models to really understand how the technology can work even better, and then deploy it in benchtop systems, and then move them ultimately into the clinic. And I've, over the course of my career, more than 30 years in, in this area, I've been able to work in both the design and innovation stage and moving things, we call it translation from bench to bedside, as we were talking about, and also in the commercialization side of it as well. Have you always been drawn to public service? I never expected to be here in this position, for sure. I was very, very happy as a professor at the University of California, Irvine, where I directed the Beckman Laser Institute and Medical Clinic. That institute had and has about 200 people. There's a clinic with an operating room, basic science and technology development, and it's a very vibrant environment where there's lots of innovation going on. Young people, students coming into the field, we're able to establish a Department of Biomedical Engineering. We now have, across the country, about 130 biomedical engineering departments, and they're all engaged in these kinds of things, bringing new ideas, new engineering technology and talent into medicine and biology. So I've just been in a, the right place at the right time. I've been able to grow up with that community and see it expand and influence biology and medicine in a pretty spectacular way. There's very little in medicine or even in everyday aspects of our lives that are not impacted by devices and technologies from your smartphone all the way to when you get into an imaging machine at a hospital and you're expecting it's all going to work and an image is going to be formed and a diagnosis will be made. So I've seen the arc of development of all of that stuff very closely from the point of view of what we call optics and photonics. People may not be familiar with those technologies, but briefly, they're lasers that are used in surgery. 
Many people are familiar with refractive eye surgery, LASIK. That's an optics method. About 700,000 of those are done every year. It's the most common outpatient surgical procedure, but it's super technology and super advanced work that has evolved over many years, but now it's available to people at reasonable cost. So our community just develops those kinds of things, and that's what I love to do. So how does your agency fit into the overall NIH public health mission? Well, so I was talking about 27 institutes and centers. And if you look at what NIBIB does, we make technologies, then I can be more specific. In addition to laser eye surgery technologies, there are technologies that we support that involve engineered biologic systems. So if you think of a cell, it's a complicated organism. Our community works on reprogramming cells, understanding how cells work and representing cells just like you might represent an integrated circuit. You can write an equation for how cells work. So our community does that. And imagine you could do that for one cell and reprogram a single cell. Now think about putting multiple cells together, putting them on chips, fluidic chips or electronic chips or flexible electronic and acoustic devices. So the interface between a living system with molecules and cells and an abiotic or non-living system like a chip is right at the advanced technology point that our community develops. We also develop sensing and imaging technologies like photonic sensing, acoustic sensing, electronic sensing, fluidic types of sensing approaches. So these are being revolutionized by our community and then being brought into important problems we see all of those types of imaging and sensing technologies in everything that we do, your phone and the display and all those materials, those are advanced sensing and imaging approaches. But imagine you could harness the power of that and bring that into medicine. And that's exactly what we do. We build big physics imaging technologies like MRIs. I'm sure everybody's heard of those. PET scanners, positron emission tomography, ultrasound scanners, CT scanners, all of those radiologic systems are being built and optimized, and they work well because the engineering and physical science community is back in the dark rooms, working really hard on making sure that they're accurate, precise, reproducible, and they give quantitative information to physicians who can then make decisions about how to optimize the patient care and even prevent disease. And finally, we work on technologies that can be directly applied to therapy. So oftentimes we think of therapy as a drug or medication, but there are many physical technologies that can provide therapy. So we're just talking about LASIK, the eye surgery, that's done with lasers. There are actually lasers that do skin surgery or we call cutaneous laser surgery. It's possible to use sound waves, ultrasound, to do surgery inside the body without using scalpels. And one of the very advanced approaches involves surgery on the brain, deep inside the brain to treat things like essential tremor instantaneously with focused ultrasound waves. These are very, very sophisticated energy providing technologies that can change and alter exactly a therapeutic outcome, exactly what you would hope a medication might do, but it can be done instantaneously with an energy-delivering device. So what is the importance of modernized technology or keeping up with 
the modernization of technology to accomplish some of these things? Well, technology development is pretty relentless. I mean, you feel that and you experience that every year when there's a new phone that's released and it's got more and more cool features. And if you think about the market for all of those features, it's really large and it allows manufacturers to scale prices down. Our community takes advantage of a lot of those market forces that are, are driving the development of technologies for consumer products. And probably the most important are integrated circuits and the ability to design what we call application-specific integrated circuits into very small packages with very, very specific functions. Probably one of the most famous examples of that in our world are smartwatches. Smartwatches have little tiny chips inside them with photonic optical photonic devices that emit light and detect light, which in the end allow you to have a continuous heart rate monitoring device. They also have sensors that can determine if you're moving, accelerating, moving at constant velocity, changing direction, and so forth. So that's all integrated into small chips. We take advantage of all of that fantastic development, and then these are the new tools for medical devices and manufacturing of new things that can be wearable, can be implantable, can be integrated into big physics imaging devices as well, can be combined with cells and biologic systems to get entirely new sensing and what we call microphysiologic systems. So it's, it's kind of, it's a lot of stuff, but it's moving in a very rapid way because it's enabled constantly by advances in technologies and computation. So what is the companion piece that goes along with this is substantial information is generated from all of these devices, and we're able to sample biologic processes on timescales that are completely unprecedented. If you think of medicine as you know, it's normally practiced, you may have a blood draw or a blood pressure measurement or go into an image scanner once every year, two years, three years, but your blood pressure fluctuates every time you breathe in and out. If you eat candy, your glucose levels will skyrocket. If you have a traumatic experience, you'll have fluctuations in response levels of different molecules, chemicals that are inside your blood. So all of these things that are affecting us on daily life are not captured or monitored right now in medicine. And what our community hopes to do is to be able to develop increasingly sensitive and specific sensing devices and mathematical models to be able to integrate all that information in addition to the information about our genome and what we call the epigenetic transformations that are occurring as we live to get a better picture, a more holistic picture of individuals and then be able to personalize therapy for them. And the really big hope is to be able to head off disease before it hits you, to understand what your trajectory is, and then give you enough information to make course corrections so that you can really optimize your health span. Hmm. So the not necessarily the pace of technology, but the new technologies that are out there and, and the how quick it's always coming out, it presents opportunities, but does it also present challenges? The challenges, yes, are huge because the the innovators and creators, they're not that many of us. It's a fairly small community, but they're very powerful tools that are being developed, and we need to move them along in this blackboard to benchtop to bedside chain. 
And the only way to do that, to get it to the bedside and to get it to be a fully disseminated device, is to prove that it works. And getting proof requires moving the technology from just you know the engineering concept stage to reducing it to practice, building a prototype, getting it out into a setting where it can be tested, road tested, so to speak, under the most difficult circumstances. So let's say the new technology is designed to be able to do a better job of detecting your blood sugar levels and understanding whether or not you're making enough insulin in response to blood sugar spikes to either treat type 1 diabetes or prevent the formation of type 2 diabetes. So lots of promise there, lots of people who would love to have that, but we've got to get our technologies out into situations where they can be tested and validated, and then we know exactly how they work. So that's a very complicated pathway. The NIBIB tends to support, because of the scope of our budget, we tend to support those early innovation stages. And there, it's difficult to go, probably our biggest challenge is to figure out how to bridge the gap from early stage innovation into testing, validation, and then more widespread dissemination. To do that, we partner with other agencies and we partner with other institutes. So for us, an NIBIB investigator who's working on new technologies is hopeful to be able to move them into heart disease or neurodegenerative disease or diabetes and obesity and metabolic disease or pain management. That's what people's goals are. And we try to match those innovators with those other institutes so that they can be tried in those demanding settings and then validated. But it's a kind of slow process. So what would you say are your top three priorities taking all this into account, <laughs> what would be your top three? Well, I, I think the, the big frontier for us as we look at, we are not a disease-specific institute. We're a technology-specific institute, not just sort of in the context of what many of your listeners are familiar with, informatics-based technologies. That's clearly extremely important because our technologies are generating entirely new information about humans or biologic systems very fast with a high time, high speed capacity. So we would like to be able to match that ability to generate new information on very fast timescales with the way biologists are thinking about how life works. Biologists understand and are discovering many, many new things all the time about the efficiency of how we sleep, how we respond to pressure, whether or not fatigue impacts one person's performance and not another person's performance, how stresses over time can potentially lead to heart disease or to cancer. There's a lot of information available, and our big challenge is to measure that stuff, integrate all of these complex bits and pieces of information, and as I was mentioning before, get that more holistic view of people, and then figure out how to prevent disease in the first place. I would say that's one, two, and three all wrapped up in one. The technologic challenges of getting our, our methods and devices to match the timescales and be exquisitely sensitive to the important biologic processes, then capturing all that information and developing the right computational approaches to integrate that combined with conventional things like imaging 
and then make predictions about people and advise physicians better on how to optimize and personalize therapies. It sounds ambitious, but it will happen. It will happen for sure in your lifetime. A lot of the way, I mean, one of the interesting ways to, to make that work in a practical sense is that if we can gather enough information about you with sensing and imaging technologies, we can create what is effectively your digital twin. So this is a concept that's very common in engineering and manufacturing. If you build a bridge, you first build it on your computer. And then when you build the bridge, you embed in the bridge tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of sensors, depends on how the bridge is, so that you can look at the mechanical properties of the bridge in different locations. And then you can reconstruct whether or not that bridge is stable and secure or it's degrading and falling apart. So the same thing is possible with humans. We don't have all those sensors necessarily that are built into us, but we do understand what a lot of those biologic processes are. And our community builds those sensors and imaging devices that can access that information. Once we do that and validate those approaches, we can build digital twins for humans. And then we can start to use that as a guide to figure out, well, is this blood pressure medication going to work for you? Is this approach for diabetes going to work for you? And people are mystified. A doctor may treat two people the same way, and one will respond and one will not respond. Why is that? We know there are underlying differences in genome and physiome between two different individuals. How do we quantify the consequences of that? And these technologies are ways for us to do that. And then if we can represent you in a digital sense, then we could start to do experiments on the computer with you and say, well, you know, we think you should take this beta blocker as opposed to this diuretic, and that's going to do a better job of controlling your blood pressure. But to do that effectively, we're going to have to have a continuous blood pressure monitor so we can see all those dynamic fluctuations that occur as you breathe or when you get on the beltway during rush hour or when you interview scientists like me. <laughs> Thankfully, I was not on the beltway during rush hour today. So. Yeah. Coming from being a professor in the academic world in your previous life and yes. coming into the NIH, what would you say has been the difference between the two settings as yes. far as accomplishing these priorities? You know, you came from a teaching role and now you're in a public service role. Yes. What is the difference or maybe similarities? Well, there are a lot of things that are directly transferable, and I'm certainly still teaching a lot. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that our community of technology developers is still fairly small within the biomedical universe. The NIBIB is, from a budget point of view, about 1% of the total NIH budget. Although we found that almost 12% of the NIH budget across all the institutes is now spent on bioengineering. So it's a very important and growing area. But for sure, I'm constantly teaching about our technologies and helping my colleagues understand what the potential is and where things can, can go and impact the institutes that are more disease-focused. I'm also trying to do that more and more with communication with the public. Ultimately, it's the public that we are serving, and it's critical for us to understand what the needs are 
and how people respond and look towards technology development in their lives. It's also, I guess, a new challenge to be at a place as large as the NIH. When I was at a university, 30,000 people at that university with many different departments and the University of California overall has 10 campuses. That's a big system, but still it's a fairly understandable system with schools of engineering and school of medicine. I was part of both and I understood how that worked because I grew up in that system. Coming to the NIH, which is a giant agency and everywhere you look, there's something amazing happening with incredible people all around our campus and we have multiple sites all over the place. It's been very challenging to learn all of that and get to know everyone, but very, very exciting and a fantastic opportunity for me. What motivates you to continue pursuing this field? Oh, that's a good question. I think first, I'm very, very passionate, as you can probably tell, about the technologies, their capacity to really change people's lives, the impact that I, I've seen the technologies that I've worked on over the course of my career has been remarkable, both from developing a deeper understanding of how biology and life itself works to the very practical applications of curing disease. I've worked in, in breast cancer and have been able to contribute some technologies that allowed us to really optimize how therapies are delivered to patients and customize, personalize for them so that individuals can be treated and cured. So I've seen the power of that, and that that's one thing that really drives me. Another thing that really drives me is the enormous potential and capacity of the young people in our field. There's been this enormous growth of bioengineering, and I've been very privileged to be part of that growth over the last few decades. There are all of these fantastic, determined, altruistic young people who want to mix engineering, physical science, mathematics, and biology and medicine together. It's a kind of a new movement. It hasn't been going on at a large scale for that many years. The NIBIB was only created in 2002. And at that time, there were only about 30 biomedical engineering departments in the country that had certification from our major certification body as being bioengineering degree uh, approved. There are now 130 departments in the country, and we're adding almost 1,600 new undergraduate students per year in bioengineering. Almost 70 professors are being added all across the country every year. So it's a remarkable growth and opportunity to train the next generation of talent. And what's exciting about that talent is that they're thinking a little bit differently. It's changed how engineering schools are thinking about what their mission is. I would say a few decades ago, schools of engineering were not considering human health as such a high priority. But with the growth of bioengineering and with the influx of this remarkable talent and people with a combination of passion for hard technologic things, but altruism, that's changed exactly how engineering schools view what their mission is in the country, actually all around the world. So to be able to help nurture, grow, and develop that talent, make sure that they can make their contributions, as I've been able to do over the course of my career, will certainly substantially improve quality of life for people in the country. So taking into account the academic versus government side of things, where do you see government's role currently or 
evolving, if at all? So that's a good question. I think we have such an important role, especially as I think of technology in our lives and in medicine. If you imagine right now, and you're very young, so you probably haven't encountered very many uh, technologies in medicine yet, but if your listeners start to think about MRI or pulse oximetry or EEG or ECG or various instruments and devices that we all depend on in medicine to help us make better decisions. If you've been in an intensive care unit, a pediatric intensive care unit, they're incredibly technologically rich. If you look at surgery today, there is really almost no mention and it's virtually disappeared from our language, the, the idea of exploratory surgery. We have minimally invasive endoscopic surgeries. We have robotic surgeries. We have amazing imaging technologies that allow us to see inside the body before we do surgery to help us understand and treat and prevent disease better. So it's a very technologically intensive process. But the key point to this is that all the technologies that are out there that we're all experiencing and benefiting from in medicine are all pretty old. They may have shiny exteriors, but most of them were invented, conceived, and developed 30 to 40 years ago. They're optimized in an iterative way and perfected, improved, miniaturized, costs have been reduced, but they're fundamentally very well-established approaches. So it leads to the next question. When you're my age and you're experiencing more technology in medicine, where are those technologies going to come from? They're going to have to be 20 to 30 years old because it takes that long for the technology to go from blackboard to benchtop to bedside. It takes a minimum of 10 years for those technologies to appear. And typical courses are on the order of 20. So we have to figure out a way, and the reason for this is because the early stage technologies are high risk. They're not always ready to move out. We have to validate them. It takes time. Companies aren't always ready to invest in high risk because the pressure on a company is to make money with a commercial product in a fairly short period of time. Many companies are looking at one year for a new product to make money. If you're in the software business, it can be matters of months. So it takes time to develop new devices that we depend on. It will take time to validate and disseminate some of these very advanced and sophisticated technologies. And what we can do in government is make sure that we have, I like to think of it as a primordial soup of technology development ongoing all the time. We have to be helping create that soup, boil, stir, some of these components in that soup will come out and start to make an impact on our lives. But if we turn the heat off the soup, if we don't have enough stock ingredients to put into it, then it will not be able to nourish us over time as a society. And that's what we can do. We can make that soup. So you mentioned this before, as far as outreach, not only to on the recruitment side of things, but also to the public and also to the other institutes as well. Yes. Can you go into maybe what's on the horizon as far as what you are doing to promote your institute's work or your needs and how industry can get involved, for example? Is there anything that you're looking toward to in the future? 
Yes. Again, that's a that's a great question because I think traditionally one of the reasons why people are not that aware of the kinds of stuff we do is because the engineering and physical science community is mostly fairly quiet and working in that dark room with donuts and coffee, you know, really working and optimizing their technologies. So I feel very privileged to be able to represent that community. That's my view of what my job is, representing the thousands of engineers and physical scientists all around the country who are working to develop better ways and better ideas and help explain how the things that we all benefit from right now, how they came to be in the first place. And some people, if they're patient enough and want to listen, I like to explain how they work because the stories behind how some of these things work are rather unbelievable. Like thinking of using sound waves and controlling the wavefronts of sound waves with advanced computational methods in real time that can be focused through your skull to create a little one millimeter incision deep inside your brain without any scalpels so that you can do surgery for essential tremor and stop a tremor in a person. So it's pretty remarkable when you hear these stories. I like to try to help educate people about, in some ways, it's quite miraculous how the technologies can be harnessed to do good for humans. And so I see that as a really big part of what I can do and how I can help move this along. And, you know, the challenge is for me to get that message out in as many different opportunities as possible. So that's why I'm really so pleased to be on your podcast. But I give lots of talks, both to lay audiences. I've had the opportunity to testify in Congress and answer some of the same questions that you've just been asking me. I work closely with our professional societies, and we have many, many wonderful professional societies who are really big stakeholders in this whole process of trying to promote and develop both human capital, humans who are training in these new ways of thinking, because the future of medicine is about engineering. We are engineering the future of health at the NIBIB. That's our mission. And engaging with as many people as I can to help disseminate and communicate that is one of my top priorities. Well, it certainly, I guess, brings your experience to full circle, being from the teaching side and now here. Absolutely. You're, you're continuously doing that. So interesting to hear. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me on the show. It was great to hear all these things. And I'm glad to, or I'm looking forward to hearing more about what's coming out of your institute and your work. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. GovCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentcio.com slash podcasts. If you liked what you hear, let us know by leaving us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. GovCast is produced by Amy Kluber. It is edited by Resonate Recordings. Theme music provided by Big Hoax. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsor at governmentcio.com. 